Hello and welcome to the Dogs in 3 podcast. This is Matthew Keith, and as you all know, our Diamond Dogs just won the 2021 National Championship. Those are words we didn't ever know if we'd get to say. This run and this championship was so special to so many people, and I want to do a podcast that talked to different people and gave their perspectives, their journey through the tournament and College World Series, and what this championship meant to them. Thanks for listening. This episode of the Dogs and Three podcast is an interview with Tyler Younger, who served on the coaching staff at Mississippi State for the past three seasons. It was really neat to hear Tyler's perspective on this run from the dugout, and I think you guys will enjoy it as well. Thanks. Joining us tonight is former Mississippi State coordinator of baseball player development and current Gulf Coast State College head coach, Tyler Younger. Tyler, appreciate your time, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So, as we were just talking about, um, I've, I've been getting the, the different perspectives from a lot of people on kind of the run uh, through Omaha into the championship. And uh, I've been looking forward to hearing some of your thoughts just a little bit from from the other side. It was, it was neat to talk to Saunders and, you know, as a former player's perspective, um, and then, obviously, the coaches have a different perspective as well. So, before we get into some of that, Tyler, talk about a little bit about just your background in general. General, where, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Go to college? All that fun stuff. Yeah, so I'm from a small town of Virginia called Chatham, which is in between Lynchburg and Danville. I guess those are two of the cities that are closest to there that people would be most familiar with. So, I played... I played my high school ball there, and then I went to Methodist University in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and played uh, four years there. Then I left there and went to NC State as a as a grad assistant for two years, um, and that was actually my connection back to Mississippi State was Coach Foxhall. I worked with Coach Foxhall at NC State. Um, then I left there and went to Bradley for a year, was a volunteer assistant. I coached the catchers, helped with the hitters. Um then Coach Foxhall called me in September of what was that 2016 and said, hey, there's an assistant job open down at Gulf Coast in Panama City with one of my good friends. He's the head coach. They're looking for a guy, and it'd be an opportunity for you to recruit and, you know, coach and and do all those good things. Because, I, I mean, in college baseball, it's at the end of the day, it's you have to be able to recruit. I mean, if you – um, you got to have the horses. So it's, you know, I, I needed to move into a role where I could actually do some recruiting on my own. And so I did that for two years. And then Coach Foxhall got the pitching coach job at, at State. And uh, he called me one day and said, hey, we got this player development job that's that's available if you'd be interested. He's like, you know, you've gone somewhere and you've recruited. So you got that under your belt now and on your resume. He said, I think it'd be good to, for you to take a step you know, into the SEC if, if that's something you like to do. And, you know, of course, at the time I'm thinking, you're darn right. Like, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm all about this. So, I mean, it, not yeah. every day can guys say they, they went from junior college to the SEC. Um, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So that was 2019 whenever Fox and Lim came in. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it would have been the summer of 18. So, okay. it would have been the 2019 spring. Got it. Um, okay. So, 
I think I said it right the first time. Was it director of player development? No, I think you said it right the first time. It was coordinator of player coordinator. development. Coordinator. There we go. Um, so tell me a little bit about what that job entails. And then also, you know, I think most people that listen to this will be familiar with the restrictions on college baseball. So, you know, talk a little bit about some of the areas where you get involved more as an assistant coach than, you know, just that role due to the limitations on the number of coaches and whatnot. Yeah, right. So when I actually went up and talked to Lamontis about um, taking that job, you know, his phrase was, you're going to kind of coach the coaches. I want you to learn the technology and the analytics and you're going to coach us um, on that stuff. And then we'll, we'll take what we want from that and use it, you know, to do the on field stuff. So, my main role was the analytics side of things. And I helped, I was with coach Foxhall um, the majority of the time, helping him with the pitching stuff, just for one that the pitching analytics are a lot easier to um, understand and then help from a player development standpoint than the hitting stuff. There's just so many variables that go into hitting these days. Like, you know, anytime you get an average on a swing, it's a lot of it's based off the pitch location. Whereas, when you're working with the pitchers and their analytics, like the variable stays the same, like they're in control. They're throwing a pitch from the mound from the same spot on the mound every time. And it's just, it's a little easier to deal with the pitching side of things, um, which that position, that position was really good for me because I have a hitting background. I was a position player in college in my whole career. So being able to be him with him for the last three years and learning the pitching side of things, plus learning the analytics were, were huge because that's the direction that baseball is is going, especially on the pitching side. Like you have to keep up with the the technology and the cameras and and all that good stuff. And it if if you take the time to learn it, like it's almost like a cheat code in the yeah. in the coaching world. So you know the analytics were a big piece of my job. Another another thing I did, I was a liaison between the professional scouts and the team. So it was my job to. Uh, be in constant communication with those guys about, you know, scrimmage times and game times and batting practice times and who was throwing during scrimmages and what in the, in the spring, what the, what the pitching rotation was. And, um, you know, back before the virus scouts used to come in after our fall was over and do face-to-face meetings with the kids. So I would set those up. Um, but then after the virus, um, they could only do Zoom stuff. So um, from time to time, I would set those up. But a lot of times, guys would just reach out and say, hey, I need to talk to so-and-so. Do you mind if I set it up? And, you know, they would just text the kid themselves and, and get it set up because they didn't really have to work around class schedules like you do when you're meeting in person. Right. Um, you know, from a as far as a, a game day standpoint, uh, me and our grad assistant, well, it was Zach Lucas that first year, and then Bobby Austin the last two. We did all of our defensive positioning and shifts and and all that stuff for the game. So we were responsible for that. So those were kind of my three main things. And then it was, you know, other duties as assigned by the by the head man. So it was uh, it was it was something different every day. That's a cool thing about the dealing with the numbers and the analytics and even the scouts is it seemed seemed to be something different every day. So it was a uh, yeah. It was a unique challenge every day, which I always like. Yeah. So, um, you know a little bit about about my nerdy side. So, we, we 
maybe not get too technical here, but talk a little bit about some of the programs that are, you know, you feel are pretty common to, you know, at least a lot of the, the SEC schools and schools that have the resources to take baseball seriously in terms of just, you know, what are you looking at on a day-to-day basis on the analytic side for, for pitching and kind of what are a few of the things they tell you? Yeah, so, you know, as far as just, just some basic stuff to to as far as when you're talking about how to get hitters out, like velocity is still the, the number one thing that can get hitters out. Um, and then their, their vertical breaks important. Um, and then depending on it, well, it depends on if they're, if they're a guy that's going to ride their fastball through the zone. I mean, those are your guys that stay behind the baseball and they throw it and you can throw it at somebody's belt at 88 miles an hour. And it seems like they always swing under it because to the hitter, it looks like the ball's rising. Um, you know, and there's some, some release heights that go into that, that, that are, um, more preferable to that. So, so if a guy's riding the ball through the zone, you want you want him to have a release height of five nine or less, which makes and the reason being is because to the hitter that really looks like the ball is rising, right? Uh, and you know, but between five ten and six one is is considered average. So you don't you don't want to be average because average obviously means that's what the hitter sees on a regular basis. Um, and then if your release height is six two or higher, um, the analytics tell you that you should sink the ball. Got it. So, you know, it, and that was kind of what we want. We either wanted guys that could miss the bat above the zone with their fastball and below it with their breaking ball, or if they're a sinker baller, miss it below the bat with both the sinker and the breaking ball and the changeup. Um, but that's, you know, especially in the SEC, you're facing really good hitters who don't tend to swing off the plate as much. So you have to, you almost have to beat them up and down in the zone, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so my assumption would be guys like Bednar, McLeod and Sims were guys that were going to try to ride the fastball as opposed to sink. Is that accurate? Yes, yes, that is. Sp- and then who was who was somebody on the staff that was more of a, a sink guy? Um, well, if you remember from nineteen, we had Jared Lee Belt. Lee Belt was a a sink the ball yeah. back guy. Um, you know, Sarantola at times could be his fastball had that movement where he could throw it under the bat. Um, it was just a matter of controlling it with him. Um, right. trying to think who else stone Simmons had a pretty good sinker. And so did Brandon Smith. Brandon Smith actually had a really good sinker at times. So th- those are some of the guys we had more ride rise ball guys than we did sinker ballers. And you tend to, you know, in this day and age where kids are trying to throw harder and harder and they're trying to throw. And a lot of them are throwing on technology now from a young age. And, you know, if you, if you turn the TV on that's and watch a big league game, I think like your Rays and your teams like that that are more progressive Indian, the Indians, like they have more guys that can ride it to the top of the zone. And then they try to throw a, um, a breaking ball under the bat, you know, that starts in the zone over the plate and ends up um, out of the zone. And you try to get guys to swing over top of it. So I think if, if you ask analytics guys what they would rather have, they would tell you, um, guys that can ride it ride their fastball through the zone and then throw a 12-6 curveball or a, 
a, a downward breaking slider more so than a side to side slider. You know, like you know, I'm sure a lot of guys, a lot of people watch Bednar early in the year. He had a uh, his slider was very side to side, um, and it was something. Right. It was a pitch that left it, it. It wasn't a swing and miss pitch to left handers. Um, so he needed something that broke down more than it broke side to side to be able to throw to left-handers and kind of throw it to their back foot and under their bat. Um, so that's something we worked on with him pretty heavily early in the year. And then, I mean, if you go, if you watch his starts, um, after about his second or third start, he could he was able to he could throw that side to side one to to righties where they kind of just ran out of ran out of bat, and then he could throw the back foot slider to to lefties and they were you know both were sliders but they had two different shapes to them right so so all that is is fascinating to me and you know i think even the comment just about the was it five foot nine or lower you know i I don't think most people um i mean including myself until you told me you know recently just don't understand quite the level of how in tune those analytics are. And it, it just seems like, you know, any pitching coach from 20 years ago would have been able to say, hey, Will, you're not missing bats against lefties with your slider, but it just seems like the analytics allow you to dial in with more specificity to exactly what you need to do to try to miss those bats. Right. And that's that's spot on. And there and there's certain stuff with that that you're looking for. You know, like he had like I was talking about earlier, he had a ton of horizontal movement to that pitch and not very much vertical movement. And you I mean, you could look at you know, you could just put the average together. Let's say his first start of the year, you just put the average of what the horizontal break is, what the vertical break is, and um you can see well that is obviously without even watching video that is a pitch that breaks tremendously side to side and another thing he had going for him was he he really could spin his breaking ball i mean he was it was probably on average 20 between 27 and 2800 rpms on his breaking ball which is well above average even at the major league level oh wow you know so being being able to teach him that downer slider also to go with the side to side one was huge for him because when the good thing about and, and the reason you want guys that can really spin breaking balls is because it breaks so much later and so much sharper so it you know it it looks like from a tunneling standpoint to the hitter it looks like a fastball for three quarters of the way to the plate and then the bottom falls out of it oh yeah it's spinning so much that your your eyes just aren't able to to really fathom the difference between fastball spin and slider spin. Yeah, as if as if hitting wasn't hard enough already. Right. Uh, well, now well, you have all the science to right. make it even more difficult. Right. Well, they say you, you're you're using a round bat to hit a round ball, and you're trying to hit a square. So, from <laughs> a uh, from a logic standpoint, it, it just sounds difficult. Yeah, no doubt. So. Another thing I wanted to get you to just kind of touch on a little bit was when I talked to Saunders, I was just kind of asking him, you know, what were your expectations coming into this year? And before he got into that answer, he just said, I can't talk about those expectations without talking about 
what I saw from the staff when during COVID, you know, coaches have never had time on their hands. Right. And COVID kind of forced you to be able to play golf and actually like develop some friendships outside mm-hmm. of the coaching staff. And he just talked about, you know, how often he would see the group together, whether it's just playing ping pong or, you know, sitting around telling stories, cooking or whatever. That do you feel like that was something that was a very noticeable change, just the amount of time you had to kind of hang out together and with other people? Yes, no, and there's no question about that because our our lives are even like in the off season we're you know we're running camps a good bit of the time so there's not a ton of downtime to hang out with other people but you know Starkville being the small town that it is um, you know it gave us an opportunity to go hang out at the country club and you know play whether it was playing golf or hanging out on a Friday afternoon uh, or a Friday night you know eating at the club or or going out to the Mississippi State golf course. Um, now, as, as far, you know, obviously we, you know, we would have rather been playing and, and you know, maybe playing for a national title in 2020 also. But, you know, with the, the craziness of that year, um, I think looking back, I don't know if any of us would have changed that. Um, and the the closeness of our staff, I don't, I don't know if I've ever been around a staff that was that close, especially because, I mean, there was – you know, there's six full-time guys on the staff, and then if you add Bobby in as a grad assistant, I mean, there's seven of us. It, it's hard. It doesn't matter where you look. It's hard to put seven people in the same room that get along as well as as our group did. Um, you know, and and that that's a that's Lamont. Lamontis is obviously running the show, and and he just does a great job of delegating roles, and you know, whatever role he gives you on the staff, he lets you do it. He lets you work and he, he doesn't try to micromanage or interfere with what you're doing. Um, and another good thing about Lamonis is, um, you know, he's big on when you're at work, like he wants you working hard and doing things right. Um, just like anybody, but you know, when it's, when it's time to go home and hang out with your family, he, he wants you to, um, he wants you to do those things also. So when you're there, he expects you to do what you're, you're supposed to and work hard for, for him and the school and, in the program and but when it's playtime it's playtime yeah and, and yeah. With, with covid like none of us knew what um what the next step was heck we didn't we didn't know if there was even gonna be a fall so it was like it was playtime all the time for us yeah yeah that's great um all right so let's let's dig into the season a little bit what you know all you heard about was you know, the, the expanded rosters and how this was going to be the deepest roster, especially pitching staff-wise in college baseball history, which makes sense. I mean, you had more scholarships. Right. Talk, talk about the expectations from, you know, from yourself and kind of the coaches in general coming into the season. Yeah, so I was obviously being in Mississippi State, the expectations are always through the roof, which they should be because, you know, we, had, we have every resource imaginable there, and, you know, and we should be competing for – championships on a yearly basis but you know going into the fall we like i told you earlier i dealt with the scouts and after the first few scrimmages there's guys coming up to me going we had like within the first couple of weeks we had like 12 guys that hit 94 or better <laughs> and uh i'll never forget the tiger scout coming up to me and going he's like you realize you guys have more velocity on your pitching staff than our big league team does <laughs> Um, you know, now obviously velocity and, and pitchability are two different things. So the guys sure. are 
Olympic level are incredible. But for somebody to make that comment is pretty astounding. So, I mean, going into the year, we knew that um, we had good arms, but it, you know, it was a, it was just a matter of you know keeping them healthy, and then you know how much pitchability was was there because you know a league like the SEC about half and you and we saw it. Our pitchers dominated all the way up to SEC play, probably even halfway through SEC play. But the hitters, the hitters start to catch on. They start to see velocity, you know, every time they step in the box. And, and so you got to be able to do some other stuff other than just throw it hard at, yeah. at that point in the year. Um, but from a pitching st- side, obviously the expectations were really high. And then, you know, offensively, really the only two, well, three returners we had that actually had um, a legitimate um, explore legitimate experience in the SEC were Rowdy Jordan, Tanner Allen, and and Josh Hatcher, and even even Luke Hancock. You know he didn't play a ton his freshman year. He played some, but not a ton. And then you know twenty twenty got cut short, so we never got to play, make it to SEC play, and so we didn't have hardly any experience on offense. Yeah, and one of the other ones that I had a little bit of experience behind, probably behind the top three. Um, now his name's escaping me. The third baseman, second baseman that ended up quitting the team. Yeah, Landon Jordan. Yeah, so yeah. I, you know, I would assume he's a guy you think, you know, is going to be in the in the thick of things coming into the season. Right. Yep, that's exactly right. And and to lose him, like you know, because because we felt like he would have been a piece for the majority of the year. So losing him was losing you know even more experience and. Um, but we, had our, that group was, you know, when their back was up against the wall and you really saw it the last month of the season, uh, I mean, it, the folk, the focus heightened, heightened tremendously. Um, and usually like, and a lot of people, I was talking to a guy today from a huge Mississippi state fan and he, he, he made the comment like that was probably the, as far as talent wise of the teams that have been to Omaha, that may have been the least talented team. Right. And, you know, I, and I didn't. I remember watching the thirteen team, and I, then the eighteen. Obviously, I was part of the nineteen team, and I before thirteen. You know, I don't. I'd never watched a ton of Mississippi State baseball, so I can't attest to that. But I t- the the one thing about this team was when their back was up against the wall, they were ready to rock and roll. Which, you know, when you're when you're in the SEC, prepares you for that because I can tell you from the coaching side, it's like you're just you're hanging on for dear life every pitch that's thrown because the talent level is so equal across the board that, you know, one pitch can change the game in either direction. And and everybody knows that. Right. So you're, you know, by the time you get to the postseason, you're super prepared because you've done that for the last 30 games. Right. So, but yeah, obviously the expectations were, were high just just because you're at Mississippi State, so, um, but you know that that was the one thing going in that that scared us a little bit was the inexperience. Because even on the mound, we had all these big arms, but we had nobody with SEC innings, right? Um, so Saratola was the only one, and every everybody knew he was a bit of a wild card. Yeah, that's no, that's exactly right. So yeah, everybody we were expecting to to run out there starters on the weekend. Other than Sarantola, yeah, had zero innings in the SEC. And then I know that uh, that Bednar had a little bit of an injury in that opening couple of weekends of the season. Was was a thought 
coming into the year that he and uh, Christian were kind of one or and one A, or did you kind of expect one of those two to to be your your Friday ace? Yeah, it was kind of going in. It was it was it was one A and one B for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, and luckily that the Will's deal at the beginning of the year was wasn't serious. It was just something he you know needed a little bit of rest for. But you know that that kid is a uber competitor. So when he he came back, he came back with a vengeance and hit the ground running yeah so just to kind of hit a few highlights throughout the year so you know you mentioned the toughness of the team and it seemed like they just showed that very early on I mean I think about the the two lane series and then um was it Kent State after that I think we had to come from behind win or two against them as well so you just you know you saw that early on and you did kind of have some of the older guys um that were in the middle of that early on in the season. Um, another thing that I think was pretty big in the season was the plan coming in is Cam James to be your everyday shortstop. Talk about, you know, not the ins and outs of the discussions, but just kind of what what the general thoughts were from the staff in terms of the pros and cons of making that change, moving Cam over to third and, putting lane in it short yeah so you know all of our really all of our fall work and preseason work um you know lane coming in we knew he was a great defensive shortstop and he showed that both in the fall and in the preseason um and you know it, but it, it was going to be cam's job and it's going to be cam's job to lose ultimately at the beginning of the year and um you know as everybody saw it, he, he had some struggles at short early in the year. So, you know, the, the one thing, you know, Cam, Cam was a big part of our team. His teammates absolutely love him. Um, so any, anytime you consider a move like that, you, you also have to consider the, you, you, you know, that's where coach Lamonis did a good job of having real feel for how the team felt also, because you, you got to have a pulse on that too, because, you know, you, you don't want to move a guy that, you know, it, everybody loves on the team and, and nobody understands why you're moving him. And then, you know, all heck breaks loose. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, everybody kind of saw what we were so- seeing that, you know, and from a, and, and we felt like it was possibly affecting Cam's offense a little bit. So we wanted to put him in the best position to succeed. And, and we thought that was a third base. Um, and that ultimately ended up being the answer because Lane did a, Lane did a great job at shortstop. Cam still had some ups and downs at third, but by the end of the year, Cam was doing a great job at third base. Oh, Man, he, he was. He was he was solid in that cultural yeah. series at third. Yeah, you know, he made that great catch against, I think it was Virginia, um, in one of those innings early when it looked like, you know, they were throwing haymakers at us, and somehow we kept getting out of trouble. Um, and obviously that ended up being huge. I think it was second and third when he made that, play diving into the stands and you know that was one of the three or four innings we held them from scoring when they had multiple runners on um and then he made he obviously made the play to end the world series on the bunt um that was incredible and so i want to get your thoughts later on that bunt. yeah yeah <laughs> i i'll yeah i have quite the probably the opinion. um uh, so uh, i know i know we're we're already running up on time and I, I do want to get to the series but there's a couple of other 
kind of high points in the season that I think would would be interesting just to kind of hear your thoughts. So after the Arkansas series, does does that change your thoughts any on you know the team, or is it just kind of hey, this is SEC is one of those weekends? Yeah, it was it was more so the latter because that had happened to us in nineteen too, and we were. We were rolling in 19 and we went to Arkansas and got punched right in the mouth. And it was that year, that was the best thing that could happen to us because we got rolling after that. Um, it was kind of the same this year, too. Like, you know, we opened up, I'm trying to think, that was that the second or third weekend of the, I think it was the second weekend of SEC play. I think you're right. It, yeah. was, it was right there at the beginning. Yeah. Um, I think it might have been the home opener of SEC yeah. play. Yeah, I think you're right. Oh, and, you know, and we said this when it was over, and that's not to make an excuse or anything, but the way Arkansas played, it was they tried to hit the ball in the air and hit it over the fence. That was – and the whole weekend, the wind just howled out at Duty Noble. So, it was probably one of the worst weekends that you could have played them, to be honest. Right. And then – because I I think they hit 10 home runs that weekend, something like that. They hit a bunch. They had a bunch. It was, it and was, they weren't cheap. No, they weren't. And you know, even of the ten, there was probably there was probably six of them that I would say were legit home runs. Um, yeah. you know, some of the other ones the the wind may have helped a little bit. But yeah, that was um we were coming off of a, a good series win LSU at LSU, and maybe you're thinking you're a little better than you actually are. Um, and then you, you run into the, the Razorbacks. And, you know, they punch you right in the mouth. But it, it was just like I was talking about earlier that this team, the team responded all year long. So, you know, maybe that at the end of the day, that was the best thing that could have happened was, ah, guys, we got a good team, but we may not be quite as good as we think we are. Right. So, you know, let's get back to work and, and see what we can do. And, yeah, but I, I think it was more the latter of your question just to, you know, chalk it up to you playing a really good team on a weekend that was more in their favor as far as weather conditions and they just played a lot better and we didn't we it wasn't just we didn't pitch well we didn't do anything well we didn't pitch well we didn't swing the bats and we didn't play defense the defense was probably the most atrocious part of the weekend that weekend oh because we we gave them some opportunities to um to continue hitting and it seemed like every time we made a mistake they hit a three-run home run so yeah, they were they were good they're a really good team I've, I've said that that just shows that college baseball is not it's not fair right. uh, it's really really tough to make it to omaha no matter how good you are yes uh so the the other one i think that's worth noting i know mizzou wasn't a, a good weekend and a&m i think you went to but the starters just really didn't have a good weekend but sec tournament tell me whatever you're comfortable saying about you know the sec tournament kind of the mindset going into it and the thoughts after it's over right right the the mindset is to win it like we're all competitive it's the staff the kids like you want to go in there and win every game you play um you know the with with the toughness of the sec obviously from a resume standpoint you know, your RPI is always through the roof because of who you're playing. Um, and if you've done enough resume-wise to make the to, to be a national seed where you can host in the, in the regional and super regionals, obviously the SEC tournament doesn't mean as much, um, 
you know. So I don't like I said earlier, this team when their backs were up against the wall, they really came to play. But you know, maybe it was a little bit in the back of our minds that ah, oh, well, we don't have to win this SEC tournament, right? Um, you know, you hope that was not the thought process. I know from the coaching staff standpoint, that was not the thought process because we were obviously super embarrassed with what happened there. Um, but looking back. You know, we didn't even finish a full game there. We didn't, we couldn't play nine innings there. And but we came back. Lamona said, "Okay, we're going to take two full days off." So we did. Didn't do anything baseball wise, and we came back that Sunday and started practice again. And from then on, the focus level changed tremendously. Um, and so I, I, I'll tell anybody this: I think that was the best thing that could have possibly happened to us was to get run rule twice in that tournament, come home, get some rest and get ready to rock and roll again. Yeah. So uh, we won't get into specifics too much of of regional and super regional, but the question that I want to ask you, so, you know, growing up a baseball guy, you know, you were, you're at NC state, big time baseball, obviously state fans, uh, I mean, I'll put him ahead of anybody. Obviously, I'm biased, but I just I think that turnout in Omaha shows that uh, to to steal the SEC phrase, it just means more to to Mississippi State baseball fans. But talk about your experiences, even from the dugout, say Stanford Super Regional and Notre Dame Super Regional. Are there times where even though you're locked in the game, you just kind of can't help but be in awe of the crowds? Yes, there's no question, especially that first time in 19 against Stanford. I mean, that's that's that was the reason the ballpark was built, I think, you know, is for atmospheres like that. But, I mean, there was times in that series where I, I would run the walkie-talkie from the, from the dugout you know, radioing down to the bullpen about who needed to get loose or whatever hot. And there there was multiple times, both in the Stanford series and the Notre Dame series this year, where I had to go back in the locker room or at least back in the hallway to even be able to hear on the walkie-talkie. You know, and that's what I actually – I talked to a kid from from Notre Dame a few weeks ago, one of their pitchers, and I asked him, I said, you know – when we're playing and there's all those people, when something good happens and everybody's cheering, we're also screaming in the dugout. So you don't, it's hard to take in how loud it actually is, if that makes sense. Right. Right. Um, so I asked him, I was like, how loud is it? And he's like, you can't hear yourself think. He said, the ground is shaking. Um, he said, it's a, you know, playing at Notre Dame all year and, you know, they don't let them have any fans, which, you know, I don't, not a ton of people come to those games anyway, even if they could have fans. But I mean that he was talking about like how awesome that experience was and how much they enjoyed it um, and how much it actually does make a big, big difference. He's like, we were the, and they were, they were the top defensive team in the country coming into the super regional. And, you know, they made a, a boatload of errors in those three games. Yeah. Um, but now that, that, experience and and then you know you think nothing can top that and then you get to omaha for the championship series and there's probably of the twenty five thousand, there's 22 or twenty three thousand mississippi state fans which is probably not even exaggeration no i don't, uh, I don't think it is and um, you know that that was that was just because there's more people and that place holds more people that was the loudest place i've ever been in yeah it was 
it was it was pretty special. So, all right, I want I'll try to do a speed round, but I do I kind of want to go game by game a little bit in in Omaha. So, game one is when I mean Bednar just goes horns down and he just he shoves it. I mean, talk about watching that from the dugout. I mean, yeah. you guys, when a guy's going like that, are you kind of like talking about it? You know, even amongst the coaching staff, like he really got it tonight. Yeah, you know, there were some comments like that's this is pretty special to watch. Um and that you know, that was the second time we played Texas on the year and we struck them out a bunch the first time we played them. Um but they got, you know, that was opening night and opening weekend and they had gotten a ton better as the year went on, so it was it wasn't shocking because it was Bednar and his stuff is incredible. Uh, but it was a little shocking at the same time to see a, a, a team of that caliber. And, I mean, he is just mowing them down. Um, you know, but it goes back to the analytics we were talking about earlier. He's, he throws that rise ball, and, and he was throwing it at their belt at, you know, whatever it was, 92-96, and that they couldn't sniff. And he also had his breaking ball working that day. And something else in that stadium, the, the you know, when you play that 6 o'clock game, the shadows play a huge factor on the hitters because the ball is changing colors as it's coming to yeah. the ball. Um, you saw with our hitters too, which they had Ty Madden on the mound, who's up to 98 with an incredible breaking ball. And um, it's just hard. You're facing, you know, really both those guys were, you know, middle of the first round. I know Ty Madden ended up going in the, into the first round, but they're both first round arms and, you know, the shadows are terrible and both of them are on that night and it's, kind of miserable for a hitter yeah i bet well that was that one was a lot of fun to watch so let me ask you this as when you see the bracket like that is is there any dialogue amongst the coaches like who you would rather face in game two or do you not even allow yourself to go there um yeah i mean that's you know i think it's human nature just to talk about that especially when the game's before you and you just yeah there's you know it it was either going to – I think we thought we would have rather played Virginia than Tennessee, but the guy the guy we ended up getting from Virginia had – you know, he he hadn't pitched great all year, but he figured it out in the postseason. And, I mean, his stuff was – you know, we saw Kumar twice. We saw Leiter twice. And he his performance that night was right up there with – as far as the stuff goes, just right up there with them. So, so how, how do you go over – a pregame scout with a guy like that because I know as a coach, look, you're you're going to kind of talk a guy up above what he might be sometimes just to make sure everybody's prepared. Like everybody can make sense of that. But I'm sure there's a little bit, you know, I didn't see the tape of what he did, but, you know, I heard that he pitched well in the super, but there's probably a little bit where as a coach you're like, hey, like we're not BSing you. Like this guy's got legit stuff. Right. But what was that conversation like? Yeah, so, I mean, that was really the message, that the this, this stuff's really good, but he has trouble throwing strikes, which he did not that night. Um, yeah. But, you know, that was his thing all year. He he had as many walks as innings pitched. So, you know, our approach going in was to try to have a patient approach, but he was throwing three pitches for strikes that night, which he hadn't done most of the year. Um, and I – for looking at his track man data going into the game, I, I remember thinking – if I mean he he's got big league stuff. I mean if if this guy throws strikes, it's going to be a tough night for our hitters or any hitters. Period. Just because there was 
there was plus spin on his fastball. There was plus spin on the breaking ball. And then he had a really good changeup that had a ton of horizontal movement. And, you know, we got all those left-handed hitters. Um, and a changeup is their worst nightmare from a right-handed pitcher. And, you know, so he had three what I thought, looking at his analytics, were big league pitches. And sure enough, that's exactly what they were. Yep. And then so eighth inning, of course, it's the it's the true freshman hitting in the eight hole who's the one that kind of gives a little spark. Right. Kelm's going to be pretty special, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I, I really think he is. Just because, you know, he and he had another really good swing off of that kid the at bat before. Um, I think he hit it harder. I would love to see. I remember uh, asking you, do you have exit below on that line out to second base? He yeah. smashed that ball. Yep. Yep. You know, he came on really strong at the end of the year, which is huge, was huge for us. I mean, anytime your eight hole hitter can come up in that game and hit a huge, well, it was the first, our first hit of the game. And it, you know, at that, it was a two run Jack. Um, but yeah, Ke- Kellum just, you know, for one, if you just, he just looks good in the uniform. He looks like a big leaguer if you're sitting there watching him and you know, his, he's got huge raw power and then he's, he has some real plate discipline too. He doesn't swing out of the zone much. Um, you know, I think he's got a chance to be a really special player there. Yeah, and you could – so I wasn't there for that one. But even on TV, you could just tell just the whole energy in in the park change there. So a few batters later, you got two on for T.A. What, what are your thoughts personally going into that at bat? Yeah, so when they went to the sidearm guy, I thought they were going to walk T.A. I didn't think they were going to throw him a pitch. Um, and then they – they the first pitch they threw like it was like they were actually pitching to him and I'm like oh boy this is this is uh this is good for us because that kid he I'll argue this with anybody he was the best college hitter in the country you might could argue he was the best hitter in the draft period it was a little interesting that he didn't go into the fourth round um, yeah. but the kid was the best hitter in college baseball this year and you know a right-handed sidearm or throwing to a left-handed hitter which i'm sure saunders would tell you is kind of your worst nightmare if you're the right-handed right. side armor because <laughs> it's just yeah. th- those left-handed hitters especially one as good as him just can see the ball for so much longer and sure enough he hung him a pitch and he hit it into the bullpen and that was you know kind of all she wrote yeah that's great so we'll we'll skip just a little bit um to the uh i guess bracket finale against texas um with with um, Braylon Skinner on second, and well, my memory's bad tonight. Who's the guy that Leggett Tanner Leggett, Leggett at the plate? How how neat was that uh, from the coaching staff side to see a guy like that, who I'm assuming just kind of you know grinded all year through to see him come through an opportunity like that. Right, and that it, it was awesome because you know. Leggett's Leggett's a guy, you know, we we would joke with him and tell him he had little man syndrome. Uh, But Leggett was a crazy competitor, like in a a good way. Um, And, and, you know, he he very much had the mindset of um, work while you wait. So, you know, he wasn't getting a ton of playing time there towards the end of the year. But every day you look out there, he's busting his rear end at at shortstop and, and, you know, he's – he's working in the cage and BP and all that, trying to figure stuff out. And, um, you know, so you knew when he was up there that he was going to give you a a competitive at bat at least. Um, and sure enough, they, uh, hung him up 
breaking ball and he was ready to roll and he smacked it in the left center gap, you know? And so, I mean, we were obviously extremely excited for the kid because, you know, he had worked really, really hard up until that point, And, you know, we thought he deserved that moment. Yeah, well, that, that was neat. And you could tell, to me, he had so much composure in the interviews after the game. And he was talking about how he was confident. And I was thinking, like, you can't fake that. Like, no. if if he's not that confident, then he's a lot more nervous. I mean, you know, that's probably the only time he ever got interviewed in his, his college career, you know, by – you know, like a national outlet like that. It was basically live TV, and he—you could just tell—he was just calm, cool, and collected. That was that was pretty neat. Yep. All right, so championship series rematch with Vandy. We won't get into all the the NC State and uh, <laughs> how how Vandy got there portion of it, but game game one, you know, first inning. I'm assuming the game plan whether you admit it or not, is just let's not, let's not burn anybody for the rest of the series. Right. You know, facing lighter and lighter was red hot at the end of the year. And, um, and we thought, and we actually did a good job of grinding him out because we got him out in the, what was that? The sixth inning. And you know, that was huge. What our hitters did that night. Cause we got him out in the sixth inning and then they, they threw Maldonado the next three innings and he ended up throwing over 50 pitches. So he couldn't come back again. Cause he was, he was the bullpen arm. We had the most trouble with, you know, whether it was the regular season at their place or in Omaha. Um, so what our hitters did that night was huge for the rest of the series. Um, yeah, and I, I think you know th- there was a lot of positives. And you're gonna say, "Well, you can say this now that you've won the national title." But about halfway through that game, I say halfway, probably the seventh inning. You know, after the first inning, our pitchers just rolled. Guys came in, threw strikes. They were throwing their fastball for a strike, breaking ball for a strike, and Vandy may have gotten one hit, one or two hits after that. It yeah. wasn't many, it wasn't many, so I'm thinking about the seventh inning, like, God, if we come out and throw strikes the next two nights, like we got a good chance of beating these guys because they're struggling offensively. I mean, they were ice cold. It I mean, it was almost like you feel like you could throw it to them underhand and they weren't gonna, you know, do any damage to the baseball. And and we felt like that first inning of that first game that we just gave them seven runs. Yeah, I mean, they really, to me, they only hit the one ball hard, and that was the home run. A couple yep. of their other hits before that were just kind of bleeders. Yep, that's right. They had the chop ball through the uh, six hole, and then they had a jam job double, and then the home run was the the only hard hit ball. That, no, that's exactly right. And I think they had a bunt hit later in the game, which may have been one of their only couple hits after that. Oh. Yeah, then they, they <laughs> at the end of the game when – Preston was out of gas. They hit the ball off of him where he waved it goodbye. Right, right. <laughs> oh. uh, but you're right. It was, they they did not, you know, that's the most unimpressive. Actually, I think that was the next night. I got that not that confused. But, yeah, yeah, they just didn't square up many balls for the rest of the series, really. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's, like I said, that's something going into game two that we felt good about. Like if our guys throw strikes, we're going to, we had Houston Harding, who's a known strike thrower. And, you know, he, he pitches with a lot of guts and he's coming at you. And 
you know, if you're going to beat him, you're going to have to hit him to death. And, you know, because he's throwing it over the plate. And that, sure enough, that's what he did. And then Preston gave us what he gave us, which was huge. Yeah. Uh, not not having to, you know, Preston's one of those guys that gets stronger as he goes. And he definitely did that night. Uh, yeah, those, those were two just, just bulldog performances, I thought. Yeah, exactly. As you know, but at, the, at that point in the year and that point in the World Series and, um, you know, those guys were running on fumes and they gave us all they had. And that was huge because we didn't have to use anybody else in that game. So then you had your um, – you still had him, Sims that was fresh for game three and, you know, Bednar was was ready to rock and roll. So that was huge what they did for us in game two. And then, you know, the, obviously up from an offensive standpoint, we really punched them in the mouth to where – you know, I, there, I can't remember the stat on how many times the team that wins the first game of that championship series does not go on to win the championship because it's like when you get punched in the mouth and if you get punched in the mouth game two, it puts you back on your heels. Right. Um, especially the way we were able to, to beat them in that second game. Like, it was a statement like, you know, hey, we, we felt like last night we gave you this game and, and tonight that ain't happening. Yeah. So, so game three um, for all the marbles. I'm assuming that the conversation was, you know, as long as Bednar wakes up and feels good, like he's getting the ball. Right. Yep. That's right. And and the original plan was for him to throw three innings and going in, and he got through three innings, and he said, "I'm not coming out." <laughs> so so we, we weren't going to argue. Yeah, I guess not. So. I want you to just kind of take through instead of me asking you questions about the final game, just, just talk about just your memories of, of that game in general. You know, if there's, I don't know if there's anything that sticks out like before the game or just, just talk about that, that final game from your perspective. Yeah. So going in, we knew that rocker was on short rest for the second time because he threw on short, short rest against NC state that Friday and he was going to be thrown on short rest again after throwing, I want to say through a hundred, maybe a little more than a hundred pitches on short rest the first time. Um, and one thing about him over his career is that was something that, um, you know, him throwing on short rest usually wasn't his thing. Like his arm didn't bounce back. It's like he needed the full six days in between starts. Um, right. So we felt like from that perspective that the, you know, his stuff may not be quite as good as what it was when we faced him halfway through the year in the regular season. So we felt confident about that. And then with, with Bednar going for us, um, cause we knew he was going to gut, gut through whatever he needed to gut through. Um, you know, we felt good from that standpoint. And then in the way we had swung the bats the night before, like we felt like we had all the momentum, um, now that didn't make it any less nerve wracking sure. going into the game, but then, you know, we, we score that run in the first inning, which takes a little pressure off of you, you feel like, and then, you know, the turning point may have been the double play in the bottom of the first. Cause Will, Will was struggling to throw strikes or was struggling with his command there in the bottom of the first. And they got two runners on with like one out and, uh, their second baseman, Nolan, hit a rocket right at one of our infielders, and we turned two. I think it was right at the shortstop. Um, and we turned a double play, and it was like that was when the momentum really shifted, and it kind of just sucked the air right out of them. 
Um, yep. And then we were kind of able to chip away, chip away, and you get Rocker out, and I think he came out in the fifth inning. And he settled down a little bit after those first couple innings and pitched pretty well. And I think one of the inning, the inning we, they ended up taking him out, it started with a ground ball to short that got stuck in the guy's glove. Yeah. Either that or he bobbled it. I can't remember which one. And um, and then we were able to pour it on that inning, and they take Rocker out. And it was like we chipped away, chipped away, and then Kellum hit the big home run to make it nine to nothing. And then at that point, you're feeling real good about yourself. Um, yeah. So it was one – it, it was kind of, it was it was cool to win that, you know, really you make that statement and win because the, the last three innings you could kind of just take it all in because, you know, you felt – and then, you know, Bednar pitched the way he did. And then when Landon Sims comes in the game, it's all but over. Yeah. So I said I was going to let you talk. I'm going to break my rule a little bit. So, because, as I mentioned at the top, so you already know at this point that this is your your last game as, as a coach on, you know, for Mississippi State for now at least. You've you've taken the, the head job, uh, Gulf State, right? Yeah, Gulf Coast State. Gulf Coast State. So, is, is there any, like, extra thoughts for you? Does it make it any sweeter knowing that this is kind of like a – a, a final a curtain call for you of sorts <laughs> yeah no it definitely does it's kind of like i told my wife it's like you're riding off into the sunset um you know and, and that experience is something you'll obviously never forget the rest of your life and you know me coming back to the junior college level um i feel like having those experiences and understanding how things work in the sec and what it takes to to be able to play at that level and then play at a championship level is it's huge. I know, like, just, you know, the recruits I talked to here all summer, that's, you know, they want to talk about the – that's what they want to talk about as a national championship run. Um, right. You know, so we'll talk about that for a little bit and then talk about, you know, what we can do for them and how we can develop them and all that good stuff. But, yeah, you know, ha- having that experience is incredible, really. So, and, that, and it was funny, like, right before the last out – it was two outs, and I always stand next to Gotro, and Gotro's like, hey, but, you know, when we get this last out, let's not jump up and down and hug each other for just a few seconds. He was like, just take it in. When we get the last out, just watch the kids dogpile, and then we can do our celebration here in the dugout. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then that kid bunts, which <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what was going on. You know, what? what's, what's funny is the kid was safe as we yeah. all know, and Tim, and Tim Corbin didn't even try to review it. Right. I don't right. know if Tim was thinking the same thing, or if I don't know if he was thinking, like, all right, they're already celebrating. I'm not going to do this. Oh. Yeah, it's funny because I – this is just – unfortunately, I'm just wired like this. I took a second to not start celebrating because I was waiting for him to, like, come and challenge it. So I feel like – that jerk that bunted robbed me some pure joy, a few seconds of pure joy, because I had to wait and see if they're going to challenge it. No, that's <laughs> right, right. So, and I, I, I same way. Like I was, I was obviously listening to Goat's advice. Like I was trying to take it all in, but it's. I was thinking, like, oh gosh, they're going to review this. Our kids, yeah. you know, they've thrown their jer- their hats and gloves all over the place, and they're going to call him safe. And oh, but I guess T- Tim Corbin was thinking like us, like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah, that was bad. All right, um, I know this is taking a while. I really appreciate it. But the last kind of thoughts I want to get from you are just kind of 
the the hotel that night, coming through the lobby, and then you know spending some moments with the staff and the parade, and just kind of your thoughts on on how that all came to be. Yeah, so it's crazy how much that meant to obviously the to Mississippi State, to the fans, to the city of Starkville. Um, and you were able to de- – and now you saw it every night after a, a win in the World Series. It would be what you felt like hundreds of people at the hotel. But then that night in particular, that was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Like, um, it was like a mob scene. Yeah. But in a good way, obviously. And it, it just shows you how much that, you know, the fans it's, – it's crazy as not just the baseball program, but you could say a lot of the other programs, like women's basketball is – has been really close recently, but it's crazy that that school had never won a national title until then. Yeah. Um, but it, it just it, being an alum of NC State, like it was very similar to Mississippi State. Like it would just be when teams would make it deep, it would just be heartbreak after heartbreak after heartbreak. Um, and I think you know part of the, our staff, and I think Saunders may have said something like this, like our staff not having any affiliation to Mississippi State, it was like we didn't understand or know the heartbreak. So that was right. never back of our minds, if that makes sense. Yeah, basically you'd known the success that you'd had since you'd been here. Right, and you, and you were never sitting there. You know, I feel like if you're affiliated, and as you, you may can attest to this as being a lifelong Mississippi State fan, you, you're just, in the back of your mind, you're just waiting on something bad to happen. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And, you know, us not, you know, I know Lim's dad went to Mississippi State, but other than that, um, you know, none of us having ties to any of that, it was, you know, that was never, in, that was never even a thought in any of our minds. Um, yeah. Sometimes it takes, like, a group – a group like that that doesn't have a, a ton of ties to the school to kind of break that barrier. Yeah, that that makes some sense. And I, I, I think that's the general consensus from the fan base is that kind of this is, you know, hopefully this is just the beginning. You know, as we said, with, with Arkansas, <laughs> it's there's no magic dust where it's just going to happen, you know, a lot. It's still really, really hard, but um, you would think the belief that that it's been done, and obviously you would expect recruiting to to continue to be where it's been would hopefully help add a little bit to the trophy case. Right, there's no doubt, and that's as you know, as long as you know the core of that staff is there, you know they do a they do a great job, and Coach Lamontis does it right as the person in charge, and you know. I think as as long as that group's there and Coach Lamonis is leading the charge, like they're going to be just fine. Yeah. Well, Tyler, um, as as a Mississippi State fan, appreciate the the part and the time and energy that you put in the program the last several years, and uh, enjoyed getting to know you a little bit off the field here recently. And wish you the best of luck with the new gig. Yeah, thank you, Matthew. I definitely appreciate the. The Dogs and Three podcast is sponsored by Commercial Stationery Company in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. They've been in the office supply and printing business for 50 years and would enjoy providing you and your company with all of your office and printing needs. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Thanks for listening.